This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. Hi, I'm Carl Pillemer. I'm the director of the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research. We'd like to welcome you to this episode in our series of podcasts called Doing Translational Research. And in this series, so we talk to researchers who either have made their living working uh, in actual communities or real-world settings, or have been more basic researchers and are moving their research out. And we talk about the relationship between research and real life. And it is a special pleasure to have Marianella Casasola with us, who is a colleague of mine in human development, but also a great supporter of our work here in the Bronfenbrenner Center. Uh, Dr. Casasola is an associate professor in the Department of Human Development, and her research program focuses on various aspects of infant cognitive development and early word learning. She's long been interested in the interaction between cognition and language during the first few years of development, Uh, And much of her work is focused on early spatial cognition, as well as the early acquisition of spatial language. So she looks at how spatial skills emerge as someone who I believe is genetically deficient in spatial skills, as I am. This area is really uh, interesting to me. Um, In recent years, she's expanded her work to have a more translational focus, taking what for a lot of people is the bold step out of moving um, not entirely, but a bit out of the university lab to doing research with diverse audiences in community settings. And uh, we'll discuss that journey today, among other topics. Um, Well, so welcome, Marianella. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Well, it is a pleasure. And one way we like to begin is uh, if you could uh, talk a little bit about just your main research interests. So, um, another way to think about this is what's the biggest question or questions your your um, research program hopes to answer? So I think we are most excited to answer the question of understanding how infants and young children learn. So our, all of our research aims to look at both learning in, the ter- in terms of language development, so how do children learn the words they do and how best can they do so, as well as other aspects of learning. Um, And as you say, we've been focusing on spatial cognition, children's spatial skills, so their ability to learn um, how to navigate the world, but also um, being able to look at objects from different perspectives or pay attention to the placement of objects in the world. And we're most excited to look at links between this sort of learning and their language development, so the connection between those two domains. You know, just out of curiosity, is there a known connection between, say, infant spatial skills and over time, you know, how good they are at navigating the world or in different careers or professions? Is there anything like a long-term um, a longitudinal study, or are we not there yet? We are. So there is an in-press psych science paper from a colleague that looked at individual differences in infants' mental rotations, so their ability to kind of compare objects at different angles of rotation, so upright, say, versus tilted to the right. And what they found that infants who were most sensitive to these sorts of changes and able to compare objects quickly at about 8 to 13 months still showed uh, stronger spatial skills as preschool kids. 
Um, and so there is continuity. So as you say, there's individual differences. So some people are just not very good at it. Other people are good at it early on and they tend to stay good at it. But the good news, Carl, for people like you and I, is that even though we may start out poorly at spatial skills, it's actually a type of skill that's very trainable. And so training has can have long-term and lasting impacts. And so this is why we're really interested in this question. And it matters not just for getting around or from point A to point Z, but what's really interesting is that there seems to be a spatial component to early math skills as well. So you can take infants and look to see uh, which of those infants will then later be doing better academically in terms of math as well. So spatial skills matter academically in the long term as well. And then for careers as well, people who have stronger spatial skills tend to go into the science, technology, and engineering and math skills as well. Um, are there um, cultural differences or gender differences in this sort of thing? Or, you know, maybe starting with gender, you know, do, uh, do boys versus girls tend to differ in their um, ability to use spatial skills even at the infant level or is it yes. pretty much a level playing field? No. So um, sadly, boys begin to outscore girls as young as three months of age. So when they've done looking time studies with infants, um, male infants as young as three months show the ability to discriminate between an object and its mirror image, whereas girls at least so far, haven't shown that sensitivity. Um, and so these sex differences have been documented in about three or four different studies at three and five months of age, so before infants really are acting on the world. Um, but there's also experience begins to have an impact probably by 12 months as well. So babies that have the opportunity to handle objects and then they're put in these sort of mental rotation tasks tend to do better. And if they're early crawlers, they tend to do better on mental rotation. So again, while there's some interesting starting point differences, already within the first year, you could begin to see the impact of different sorts of experiences on how well um, children do on these spatial tasks. Oh, that's really fascinating. Um, and uh, I was wondering, you know, or I think maybe our listeners might wonder, uh, and I'm sure this is something you could talk about for the entire time, but uh, I, I might ask for a Cliff's Notes version. I, I think people may wonder, how do you actually do an experiment with infants? I mean, like they're, you know, infants. They're just kind of sitting there. What are some of the techniques that people use to actually study something like this with kids who can't talk about their experiences? Yes, great question. They're not filling out online surveys, right? We're not getting them through MTurk. Um, we, um, the parents come in, infants sit on a lap, and they look at visual displays on a screen. And so there's a few different approaches. And some babies are familiarized, so their looking time is measured to, for example, an object, and it's viewed at different angles of rotation. So in one study, they showed a letter P, and it might be upright. Um, and then the infants, there'll be a pause, a blank screen, and then babies will see it slightly tilted to the right 45 degrees. Um, and then they might see it another time tilted to the left 45 degrees. And what's really interesting then is once babies have become familiarized to this, to these sorts of displays, um, and their looking time has decreased, then what you can do is present that letter P at a new angle of rotation that babies haven't seen and its mirror image. And what mm -hmm. researchers do then is compare looking time and babies, while not great talkers at the young age, they are great lookers and they tend to look longer at events or displays that are interesting and novel. Mm 
And so you can tell when babies show an increase in looking that one display is significantly more interesting to them than the other. And it provides evidence of discriminating between the letter P and its mirror image at a new angle of rotation. Oh, that is, so that's great. Yeah, and I would say, uh, depending on what age you want, I will volunteer two subjects in advance as we are... Uh, I'm expecting twin grandchildren next month. And I will so. hold you to that. So great. Absolutely. Have them that fly out at three to five months. <laughs> well, that's perfect because I'll probably be visiting then. So that's great. Um, I wonder, you know, I know this may be a little more recent for you, but one thing that we're interested in is how people who are trying to do um, hard, hardcore scientific work, but in community settings, uh, um, how they interact with agencies or um, what's it like if you're, say, working with a Head Start program, a school, a community agency. I happen to know that you've probably had some ups and downs in that. And so we're curious, what are the challenges that, that researchers encounter trying to do work, say, with community partners or in community settings? I think it could be really variable depending on the specific community partner. A lot of it depends on the other demands that those community partners are juggling. And so much of it has to do with the timing of when the project will happen with respect to what their own goals are. So sometimes there's been just a wonderful synergy between working with the Head Start Center um, and our own projects. So we've been able to get a lot of just amazing work done over the summer where we'll essentially move into a Head Start and be there on a daily basis for hours on end. And such projects could never be successful without wholehearted support from a Head Start Center. They give us rooms, they give us access to their participants, they encourage parents to participate. And in those situations, it's just been delightful. And I feel almost that we walk away gaining more than what we're able to offer back because it's just a joy to work with the children. It's a joy to work with the staff and they're so supportive other times it's difficult because although the school may express interest and a desire and aligns well with the Head Start curriculum, the timing doesn't always work out of when we can be there versus when they are able to accommodate us. Because in our case, we've been looking at learning over time. And so it's not just a single visit or a single session with the child, but multiple visits over time. And so... On the one hand, I think we need to rethink how we're approaching some of our research questions to adapt so that we can work at a broad array of centers. Um, and then other times the centers are interested, but as they go up and ask for permission at higher levels, it doesn't always work out. So we can invest a fair amount of time in a school and in a project and spend time there, and it may not always work out. Yeah, it's very different. I think for studies also that we do in different areas, it's sort of unpredictable. You know, you go in for testing in my venues and there'll be a state inspection that day. So you have to close up shop or there, there are things like that. Or staff turnover is often so great. Uh, so, so I would imagine all those kinds of things are challenges too. Um, have you found anything um, particularly of issue in working with schools rather than other areas? I've heard some people say that it's sometimes difficult to get IRB approval, uh, other things along those lines. I think we've been very fortunate because the schools with whom we've partnered have been just amazing. And that's been true in the Ithaca area as well as in New York City. And so I think that one of the things I've learned is um, to build those relationships first 
and figure out what's going to work at both ends. Um, and then have, and once you have that support in place for IRB, it's less of an issue at that level. Yeah, we found the same thing. There's always a temptation for people new to this area to march in, demand exactly what they want, and it really does take some kind of building of a relationship in order to make these things work. Yeah. Uh, can I ask you, um, you could have continued to do your work in the lab or not think about uh, real-world settings or implications. What led you to um, want to branch out in this area? This sense of dissatisfaction that the way we were assessing learning didn't seem to capture learning in the wild, so to speak. So a lot, because I did focus so heavily on infants, all of my tasks involved infants sitting in front of a computer. Now, 15 years ago, it wasn't the case that all infants had access to an iPad. So I realized that that's changing, but you know, we've for generations, we've learned through acting on the world, through interacting with others. And I wanted to develop a program of research that included looking at learning in more naturalistic contexts, but that could still abide by that really strict experimental control that we've done in the past. I think that's so important because people sometimes think of doing work with community organizations as a kind of service. And we found too that you can still use rigorous research designs and accomplish the scientific aims, but have some kind of implication of the study for eventual stakeholders or end users. Um, so now turning to another issue, um, considering the general area in which you do research, what are some things that you would like the general public to know about or to understand? Um, is, so what do you think uh, would be important for quote, ordinary citizens, unquote, to understand about the kind of work you do, or, or some kind of message that you might like them to have? It's, I know the message. I often wonder the best way to package it, but also I, I find, so I'm doing this public voices fellowship, which is um, encouraging faculty to have a more public voice and to try to publish op-eds. And in talking to people outside of academia, I realize that people often don't appreciate or they're surprised to hear that talking to infants really matters. We forget this in the infant world because it's a message we hear all the time. Narrating what you're doing or talking about something or even just naming something really does have an important impact on infant learning and not just language, but it really does reinforce their concepts in a way that um, forgetting to say something to them might not, right? So it's not surprising, um, I guess, that it's a kind of, can be a hard message to convey. But the simple message, I guess I would say, is just remember to talk to your child and have fun and takes a few minutes of play. I think the one really cool thing that I discovered in the last round of, of studies that we did is that even just taking 10 minutes to play with a child and be good about naming what we were seeing was that we got significantly gator grains in those children's spatial skills over a month. And all we did was play with them five times for 10 minutes. I mean, that doesn't even add up to an hour, right? An hour of it spread over a month. You think, oh, how, how much can that matter? As it turns out, those kids showed at least a 30% increase in spatial gains 
over the group that still interacted and played the same sorts of activities and games. And both groups did get better, but the group that heard things being labeled showed significantly gator gains. And that's true for both boys and girls. And so these little actions for short times, I think, are very powerful. And I think it's hard to appreciate it, but I, you see it in action and it's amazing. I've had to look and relook at those results and say, is this really real? I even went to a statistician and say, and said, can you account for this effect in any other way? And they said, no, it seems to be an actual effect of, of learning. And it was over time and it wasn't that we had just played. And so it was startling to me how much little input adds up over time. And I think that's the message. Even just a little bit of talk here and there, don't bombard them. It's just a little bit here and there. And what you typically do makes a difference. It adds up. That seems like a marvelously simple thing that almost any parent, that really any parent could do and be attentive to. But it's easier said than done, I think, in the busyness of everyday life. But simple things is what kind of cereal and let's pour it in and how much milk and even just talking about your everyday activities, I think, I suspect would have an impact on children's development, language and learning. Well, that is great. And I'm going to remember this with the incipient grandchildren. Uh, well, it's been a tremendous uh, pleasure having you here with us and uh, we hope you'll come back again. And uh, we look forward to uh, engaging with our listeners on our next podcast. So thanks, Marianella. Very nice talking to you. Likewise. Thank you. For more information about translational research or the work of the Bronfenbrenner Center, please visit www.bctr.cornell.edu.